Just a quick disclaimer, there's some violence in this episode. Check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more details. This week on Myths and Legends, it's a story of revenge from Apache history. I don't want to give anything away for the story, but I guess you'll see why you should be a little picky when it comes to your dance partner. Then, on the Creature of the Week, you'll see that if you focus and work hard, you can live the life of your dreams and decapitate yourself with magic. This is Myths and Legends, Episode 98, Runner in the Night. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. Today's episode is brought to you by Spotify. Whether you're into podcasts about ghastly crimes or hip-hop rhymes, there is always something new to discover on Spotify. With a mix of originals and many of the world's most popular shows, listening to podcasts on Spotify is easy. Just open the app, tap browse, and dive into their growing library. Subscribe to your favorites, including our entire archive, so you'll never miss a show. You can also download podcasts for those moments when you're up in the air or going underground. Podcasts on Spotify are streaming right now, so go check them out. Okay, so before I begin today's story, I have to say that this isn't really a myth or a legend. This is a story of real people who lived in North America in the late 1800s. The main character is a member of the Apache and has an amazing life story. This tale came from interviews with her when she was still alive, and she actually lived until 1903. Since this was a real person, just know that I'm going to strive to get the events as accurate as possible to her account, so I'll largely stay out of her head except for what the story gives me. I'm pretty sure I haven't done this with other historical characters for the show. I know I got in the heads of villains like Vlad the Impaler and John Smith, but this podcast has grown beyond my wildest imaginings, and I'm completely aware that when someone hears a version of the story on this show, it might be the first and maybe only time they hear that story. That's a massive responsibility, and it feels wrong as a white male U.S. citizen to speak as an Apache woman who died because of white male U.S. citizens. So I'm sticking as closely to her words as I can. All that to say, I know that this is not my story to tell, and I realize that, but it's a powerful tale, and I think it deserves a much wider audience. The goal here is to share the story and handle the source material with as much respect as possible. I'll post my sources in the show notes and on the site, and I'll link to an illustrated version of the story that originally clued me into it. If you want to dig deeper, please check those out. The Black Stallion with Three White Feet. That was the key to everything. Goyen could only watch as the Comanche chief lifted the man up by his hair and then began slicing at his hairline. It didn't take long, though to Goyen, it must have taken an eternity she watched the Comanche chief slice her husband's scalp from his skull, then loop the hair around his belt. The chief walked away with a swagger. Goyen shook herself from her shock. She brushed past the body of her husband, still bleeding in the dirt, and ran after the Comanche chief. He was the last to leave. She saw him leap atop his horse, the black stallion with three white feet, and ride off, leaving the ruins of Goyen's life in his wake. there would be no vengeance for the Comanche attack on the hunting party. No vengeance for Goyen's husband. Goyen's husband had no brothers, and his father was too old to avenge him. Vengeance was a family thing, 
and Goyen, the wife, was her husband's only able-bodied family. So there would be no vengeance for Goyen's husband. At least, that was the tribe's decree. Goyen did everything she was supposed to. She mourned her husband and cut her hair to shoulder length, as was the custom of her tribe when someone lost a loved one. After that, her knife had been taken from her. She knew why. Everyone knew why. They didn't want her to do something drastic. But Goyen? Goyen was going to do something drastic. I would imagine the look of her husband's final moments, face down in his own blood, was burned into her mind. It was likely the most brutal, heartbreaking thing Goyen had ever seen. And yet, there would be nothing done about it. Her husband's murderer had walked away freely, able to live a full, triumphant life, the life her husband would never have. She looked off toward the horizon, toward the direction the Comanche chief had ridden. In the stories about her, there was never any wavering. There was no indecision. She had known from the moment the life left her husband what she was going to do. That's why she ran after the murderer and saw the horse he rode. She returned to bury her husband, cut her hair, and play the part of a mourning widow. But she was making plans. She had to keep them secret, of course. The story says she worried that if anyone even suspected what she was about to do, they would stop her and keep her with the tribe. There were consequences worse than her husband rotting in the ground unavenged, too. If it was discovered that she went against the tribe's decree and took things into her own hands, there were things they did to women like that. It was a source of shame, and not to mention terrifyingly painful. There was the possibility that they would drag Goyen back, grab one of the sharper knives, and cut off her nose. They would make sure she lived, and that she did so with that mark of shame. It was usually reserved for things like adultery, but Goyen was certain that they would make an exception for her in this instance. She had to move quickly and silently. It was only two days after they buried her husband when Goyen waited for her mother-in-law to fall asleep. When she heard snoring, she slid from her bed and ducked outside. There, she found her bag amid the thorns and took inventory, making sure everything was there. She had been mourning her husband the past two days, but she hadn't been idle. She'd squirreled away food, a water jug, a bone all, and some sinew for repairing her moccasins, and more. She knew she wouldn't be able to find a horse, or if she did, her disappearance would be discovered before she intended. She would have to walk. She slipped out of her clothes and into a simple buckskin tunic she had made waterproof. Then, she folded a dress into her bag. And high moccasins, they were ones she had taken back from her tent. They were the nicest clothes she owned. They were the ones that she had worn to her wedding, to the man she loved, the one she had just buried. The moon was down, so it was the perfect time to leave, except she still needed a knife. Gwen looked back at her people and shuddered. The medicine man was still awake. That man had otherworldly sight. He knew things he should not know, and she was convinced he sat awake to stop her from leaving and defying the tribe, but no matter what, she would see this through. Still, she really needed that knife. It would be difficult, of course, even beyond just revenge. Knives were survival out here. Hers had been taken, and she didn't dare try to sneak in and steal one of the butcher's knives. There was only one option. She snuck back into her mother-in-law's tent. Knives were so important that people even slept with them on their belts, which made Goyen's task extremely difficult. The old woman laid there, Goyen stealing herself by her side, she reached for the knife, only for the old woman to turn at the last moment. Goyen was gone from the tent before her mother-in-law finished rolling over. 
It was a long, difficult journey anyway, and it had just gotten that much more difficult without a knife. She now had five hours before her tribe would rise for the morning prayers. She filled her water jug, looked off on the horizon in the moonless night, and she started running. She stopped only a couple of times during those five hours to take a swift drink, and then she kept running. The night was cool, and she knew the way. With every step, all she could do was think of the Comanche chief and what she was going to do to him when she found him at last. He would absolutely be armed and likely surrounded by his people, but Goyan burned with rage over her husband's pointless death, and Goyan had a plan. As the hot sun rose, Goyan knew she had to find cover. The nights were cool, but the days would kill her if she kept this pace. She spotted an overhang, drank her water, ate the dried venison she had packed from camp, and slept. She awoke just before sunset, repacked her bag, repaired her moccasins, and found more water. When the moon had risen, she took off into the night. Goyan spent four days like that, making headway all night, sleeping all day, and always keeping an eye to the horizon for the Comanche. She would also put her hand to her nose and remember the Apaches that she left behind, the ones that she defied. She hoped that they would forgive her, though she didn't expect to come out of this alive. These were the people that had killed her husband and fought a handful of armed, capable Apaches. She was going into their home to kill their leader. Still, her husband deserved no less. She found a camp on the dawn of the fourth day, but knew that she couldn't approach in the daytime. As she had done the past few days, she found a rocky overhang and hid away until the darkness of night fell. They were a camp full of Comanches, drunk and seen in the night. If they would have looked out, they would have just seen a dark spot on the hill, watching them, waiting until the time was right. She knew the time was coming when the elderly people started going to their teepees, but the young people stayed up to, you know, keep the party going. Goyen nodded. Now was the time. She left her water jug, but grabbed the bag and crept down the hill toward the camp. She didn't go to the fire where the men and women were dancing. Not yet. First, she had to be sure. She didn't go toward the sound of singing, but toward the sound of horses. He was an easy one to find. The black horse with three white feet. This was the riskiest part of her plan so far. If she spooked the animals, and they found her here in the strange dress and dirty moccasins, they would know that Gwen didn't belong. But the horses were quiet. She went to the black one, untied him, and led him out of the camp. In her observations... She had seen clumps of vegetation, the perfect place. She led the horse out, hid him behind a lonely hill, and returned to camp. She waited until she was closer to camp to change. She slipped off the simple leather waterproof clothes and put on the beaded and fringed dress that she had brought from her camp. She put the old moccasins into her bag and replaced them with the ones she had worn to her wedding. Goyan hid the bag and crept into camp until she was behind the teepee right by the fire. When she stepped out, and into the dance, she would know instantly if her plan had failed. The Comanche chief would not be constantly dancing like his warriors. He would be in a seat of honor, and after enough time had passed, a woman would choose him for the dance. She could keep him for as long as she wanted, too. If he hadn't left early with someone, and if he hadn't yet been chosen, then her plan would work. If not, days of running and betraying her people would be for nothing. She had been lucky, or blessed, 
that the Comanche recently had a victory in battle. That was the reason for all this dancing. She hadn't needed to watch and wait, as she thought she might, and she didn't know when she would have this opportunity again. She smoothed down her hair, checked her dress, and stepped out to dance with the people who had murdered her husband. She could hardly contain her joy when she saw the chief, just sitting there, still at the festivities and still available. He sat on the colorful blanket in the shadow of the ceremonial teepee. She had done well to wait so long. The dancers were caught up in their revelry and didn't notice another beautiful young woman smiling, making her way slowly toward the chief. She noticed everything though. She noticed his eyes flutter a bit and close, only for him to jerk them back awake a few moments later and then reflexively take a drink from the jug at his side the smile that Goyen had put on became real. He was drunk. She walked over to the chief and with two open arms gave him the universal signal that she was asking the man to dance. He looked up at the beautiful young girl and with a drunken smile, slowly and clumsily, he stood. He blinked and swayed, but otherwise just stood there. Goyen's heart began to beat faster and faster. Why wasn't he responding to her invitation? Did he recognize her? Did he know that she didn't belong here among his people? That she was a stranger? Worse, could he know that she was the wife of the Apache man that he had killed only days ago? She raised her hands again, giving him the invitation, and still, he stood and swayed, staring at her. Gwen became aware of the people dancing around her. Were they looking at her get rejected by the chief? Would they start to wonder who she was? What she was doing here? She threw up her hands a third time, nothing. A fourth time, the smirking Comanche chief barely seemed to see her in front of him. But then, on the fourth time, a number sacred to the Apache, it happened. The chief grinned and accepted. He took her hand, and the pair entered the circle. The chief danced next to her, and even if the people wanted to challenge her to say that she was a stranger from a rival tribe, they couldn't. Not once the dance had started. That wasn't what was on Goyen's mind, though. She could only think about what was on the chief's belt. Her husband's scalp thumped against her with each motion, and it strengthened her resolve. She would go for a few rounds, follow the simple step of the social dance. Then, she had a plan. The Apache, at least, carefully protected the virgin women of their tribe. Widows had a bit more freedom. She hoped it was the same way with the Comanche. Thinking of women brought back the noseless old woman who had lost her own tribe's respect. And she knew that, even if she survived this thing, that that could easily be her fate too, for defying the tribe and heading off into the night. The still damp scout pressed against her side, kept bringing her back to the present moment, to the dance. If she succeeded in this, undoubtedly the Comanche would kill her. And when she thought of the noseless women, maybe that would be best. No. She needed to do one more thing. The Comanche chief's belt held at least two important items. Her husband's scalp and the Comanche chief's knife. Normally, in their dances, they wouldn't touch each other, but the circle was different. They stood side by side, arms brushing. Goying used this opportunity to get in close, closer than normal. She slid her hands around him in the direction of the knife and... She stumbled. She looked up to him and laughed, and he laughed back. She moved her hands on his back and sighed again. 
and he smiled. He liked that. The couple next to them were farther along. They quietly left the circle and headed for a teepee. When the chief felt her hands moving on his arms, he had the same idea. He took her by the hand and left the circle. It wasn't uncommon to forego a tent for the open field on a beautiful night, and it was a beautiful night. The chief stumbled toward the field, and Goyan followed, feigning laughter. He found a spot not far from the fire, private but not remote, and tried to urge Goyan, the beautiful young woman, to lay down on the ground. She broke free from his grasp and ran instead, but only a few feet. He looked up in surprise and saw a devilish smile on her face. She beckoned him out into the darkened field and laughed as she playfully ran. He smirked and gave chase. He got close and reached out, but she darted away. That happened again and again, until, out of breath, he saw her sitting there on a soft patch of vegetation, waiting for him. He jogged up and slammed into the ground in front of her. He ran his hands through her hair and caressed the back of her neck before leaning in for a kiss. But she wasn't there. He kissed the side of her forehead, and while this wasn't unpleasant, it was unexpected. He opened his eyes and saw her eyes focused not on him, but his belt. Her hands weren't embracing him. They were going for his knife. He was still in a bit of a drunken haze. He furrowed his brow. What was she doing? Then his eyes widened. No. She saw the realization dawning on him as the knife at his belt slipped from her fingertips. It was too late. He knew. She moved quickly. She wouldn't be able to grab the knife. But the chief was drunk and slow. So she wrapped her arms around him, pinning him with an embrace at the elbows behind his back. He shifted at first and tried to move his arms to get free. But she was like iron. He almost said a confused and slurred, what are you doing? But he didn't get the chance. Because he started screaming. She had dug her teeth into his neck. And she tore. She had no knife. So she would have to do whatever she could. Back at the camp, some of the chief's fellow Comanches slept. Others danced to the music around the fire. None heard the screams of their chief. Far off in the field. With the woman whose husband he had killed. He jerked and fought against her. And there were times when Goyen was at the end of her strength, where if the chief writhed one more time, he would break free, but she held him fast. As he fought, she felt again her dead husband's scalp pressing against her. That gave her strength as she tore at his throat, his hot blood pouring down her neck and drenching her dress. The Comanche chief's cries echoed across the plains. His struggles became weaker and more feeble until they stopped altogether and he slumped over in her arms. She had stopped biting, but she still held him as tight as ever. She knew that he was probably dead, but feared it could be a ruse for him to escape and kill her. She saw the Comanche fire far off, still burning as the people danced around it. She knew she had to keep moving. She didn't know who had heard his screams. She breathed deeply and let him go. And the Comanche chief slumped to the ground, the man who had killed her husband was dead. She narrowed her eyes. There was one more thing she wanted to do. At last, Goyen slipped the leader's knife from his belt and put her heel on his torn neck. She made a slice of the hairline, gripped the hair, and pulled. 
When it was done, his scalp dangled from her hand, dripping and bloody, like her husband's scalp had dangled from the Comanche chief's hand a mere week ago. It was done. She took his headband, his beaded breechcloth, and his moccasins too. She heard the snort of a horse not far off. She jumped at first, but then remembered. From the body to a nearby hill she flew, to the black horse with three white feet. She leapt atop it and galloped away into the night. They would be coming for her. This death would be avenged, just like she had avenged her husband's. They would find the body, remember the beautiful stranger that had led the chief off into the night, and someone would put it together. Until then, she had a few hours to flee as far from the Comanche as possible. The horse was a good one, too. It only stopped a few times for water, and otherwise rode hard through the night. The front of her dress began to stiffen with crusty blood, and the iron-rich smell filled her nostrils. But she had done it. She had avenged the man she loved. Now, there was only one place to go. She rode hard for two days, and in trying to get as far from the Comanche as possible, she didn't eat or sleep. She had left her food bag, hidden back at the Comanche camp, and she didn't dare stop. She feared waking up with a knife at her throat. Still, it became difficult to stay awake. After four long days of running across the plains, killing the Comanche chief, and riding for two more days without sleep or food, it finally became too much. It was hours before she noticed and snapped awake. The horse was still moving, but she had been out for... She looked around. It was dark now, well into the night. She had been asleep for hours, and then she gasped. She looked at the stars. The horse, without going to guide him, was heading home, back to the Comanche. He was moving quickly, too. She had no idea how much time they'd lost how close they were to the people that were hunting her. She gripped the reins and redirected the reluctant and resistant horse away from the fixed star, away from the Comanche. She commanded herself to stay awake, and for a few hours, it was somewhat easy. The short rest had fortified her. Still, as they rode, she began to waver. That was when she heard them, far off in the darkness, hooves and familiar cries. She pushed her horse harder away from them, but she was in a twilight sleep. She wasn't sure what she was dreaming and what was real. She didn't know if the hooves behind her were actual enemies or the ghosts of her past coming for her. She blinked again, and she was no longer in the plains, but passing through a valley. It was morning now, too. She stiffened with fear as she realized she had fallen asleep again. Then... Hooves, close behind her, too. They had found her. If she wasn't so deliriously tired, the horseman in front of her, blocking her path out of the valley, might have given her more of a shock. But she had known this would be the end, the moment she decided to avenge her husband. The Comanche had come for her. They would kill her. Her hand darted to the late Comanche chief's knife at her belt that was the last thing she was able to do. Despite her enemies in front and behind her, and even though she was certain it meant death, sleep overtook her. She slumped over on the horse as it trotted toward the men waiting for her. A 
the mouth of the valley. She heard voices before she opened her eyes. She heard a lot of things. The fire crackling beside her. Then, a rustling. There was someone else in the teepee. Gawain felt hands grip her shoulders, and her hand shot to her belt. To the Comanche chief's knife that had surely been taken away from her, she opened her eyes, ready to fight the Comanches to death, and found herself looking right into her mother-in-law's face. She wasn't back at the Comanche camp at all. She was back in her own teepee, with the Apache. She was home? Beaming wide, her mother-in-law embraced her daughter. She leapt to her feet and ran to the entrance of the teepee, shouting to the Apache that she was awake. She was alive. Her father-in-law, her friends, and the medicine man quickly entered the teepee. Gwen apologized for disobeying the tribe. She knew she must be punished for it, but couldn't let her husband's murderer go free and grow old wearing the scalp of the man she loved as a mere trophy. She would have rather died or lived in shame than let the Comanche chief run free. But she admitted that she understood if it would cost her her nose. Or worse. Her father-in-law was the first to laugh. Okay, yes, they didn't want her going after the chief that had killed her husband in battle because, well, that was suicide. Running for four days alone through the desert tracking down a killer while unarmed, and then killing said killer in the middle of his people and escaping? No. No, they hadn't wanted her to do that because it was impossible. And yet, Gwen had achieved the impossible. She had honored her late husband when no one else dared. So no. No, they would not cut off her nose. They had something far better in store. Her name would live in honor as long as the people talked of her tribe. Gwen rose from bed and changed out of her dress the one stiff with dry blood of the Comanche leader. She stood next to the medicine man and the other leaders of her tribe as they held up the clothes and weapons of the Comanche leader, announcing that she had done a braver thing than any man among them. She killed the Comanche chief and brought his weapons and garments to her people. She had ridden his mount. Let her name be Goyan. The name Goyan is an honored one among the Apache. It was the highest honor given to only the most exceptional women, so it was a big deal. Suffice to say, it stuck, because we don't actually know Goyan's given name. After she avenged her husband's death, people were forbidden to call her by that name, and it was dropped from all records. Goyan's life was not an easy one, even after her victory over the chief. Conflict eventually escalated into an all-out war between various indigenous groups, not just the Apache, in the United States. The Apache Wars, as they were called, ended in the 1880s with the surrender of Geronimo, a now famous Apache warrior. There were only a few Apache left following him at the end. But you know who was there? Goyan. She had remarried, and she and her husband joined up with Geronimo to fight for their lands and people. She and her new husband stayed with Geronimo until the very end. And after a long and difficult life, Goyan died in her 40s as a U.S. prisoner of war at Fort Sill in Oklahoma in 1903. Geronimo, also a prisoner of war, died there a few years later in 1909. That's the story of Goyan. I want to reiterate, it is not a myth or a legend, but a historical account with Goyan as a source. She was an incredibly strong woman 
and her story is one I wanted everyone to hear. Also, I love these history episodes, and if by some freak supernatural occurrence more hours are added to each day, I'd love to do a standalone history podcast. Anyway, next week we're jumping back into pseudo-history with the story of William Tell, the Swiss folk hero, marksman, and legendary hater of apples. I would like to say thanks to Charlie Colley, Stargazer Heart, Cadorg, Eleanor Reg, Lord Grimbo, Tom White 0510, Death in Vogue, Universal Ronin, Tickle Me Squirrel, Miss Malili, Stash Attack, H. Doff, Zugo Gligu, Danny CQ, Luke 2195, MiG 563, and Johnny Canuck 1971. Further reviews on Apple Podcasts. It's really great to hear from you. Thanks so much for leaving a review. And if you'd like to leave a review, Apple Podcasts is the best place, and you can find the show there at apple.mythpodcast.com. And there's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of one pound of mail-order snow, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad-free versions of the show that is not literally watching your money go down the drain. Also, you can't buy just one pound of snow in the mail. It starts at 10 pounds for the very reasonable price of $100. I'm not going to tell you what to do with your money, but if you're spending hundreds of dollars on snow in the mail, you probably need someone telling you what to do with your money. Please get help. Or keep the party going and check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is Chan Chan from Mapuche folklore in Chile. We all have dreams, and if you work hard and focus, you can achieve those dreams. Whether it's to become a doctor, run a successful business, or grow wings out of your ears and flap them so hard your head tears free from your body and flies away. If you believe it, you can achieve it. The chan-chan is what happens when, by sheer act of will, you think so hard that your head sprouts wings and you tear it free from your body. You'll fly around singing twee-twee-twee and feasting on human blood, i.e. living the dream. In some parts of the mythology, it's a dead person's head. In other areas, it's limited to sorcerers and... After tearing their heads free, they grow a bird's body to suck human blood. Honestly, none of those sound like ideal outcomes after years of hard work trying to tear your head from your body with your mind, but, you know, different strokes. Its cry is said to be a harbinger of bad luck. Which, yes, if you hear a wizard head hurtling towards you on a moonless night hungering for your blood, you're gonna have a bad time. In some places, the wizard has a magical cream that he uses to ease the removal of the head from the body, so... If you're traveling through Chile and a wizard offers you a neck massage with his custom lotions, maybe pass on that one. If you have buyer's remorse for your decision to decapitate yourself, you can always shapeshift back into a human form. You'll fit right in, except for your enormous ears and your craving for human blood. So, you know, good luck with that. That's it for this time. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to other music in the show notes. Today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and produced by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.